Extend a very special welcome to you, each of you here this morning. We have a special baptism that's coming up. And uh, just to kind of introduce that, lead into that, I'm going to ask you a question. I don't want you to answer this question out loud, but I want you to think about the answer in your mind. How many of you are very comfortable with, you really like, and know what a roundabout is? Everybody know what a roundabout is? Yeah, okay, it's those little things designed by the traffic people to get us around uh, through an intersection without having to stop necessarily. Now, if you're older than 40 or maybe even 35, you may find roundabouts a little bit annoying, a little bit uh, disconcerting, a little bit like, what in the heck are they doing that for? I just put a stop sign here or a traffic light and everybody will know what's going on. Different isn't necessarily bad. It's just different. And this morning, what you're going to witness, maybe for some of you, might be a little different as far as a baptism is concerned. Typically, when we think of baptism, at least traditionally, it's like, well, you know, you're going to bring a baby up here and you're going to sprinkle that baby and the baby's going to, you know, the pastor's going to say some fancy words and something's going to happen. Well, that's not what's going to happen this morning, okay? There are going to be no infants, and in fact, there's going to be only big people, okay, like not necessarily large people, but just older people, okay, I have to qualify that, Nora's a very slender, small person, and so is Bob, so they're not, neither one of them are big people, okay, but they're older people, and the reason for that is twofold. First of all, we believe that the Bible teaches in the New Testament that the word baptism actually means to, to, to dip or to immerse. That's the, there are many meanings for it, but in the New Testament when it's used, it, it, it means to, to dip or immerse. In fact, it's not just about dipping and immersing, it has to do with the, the heart condition of the person that's dipped or immersed. And so, in the New Testament, as we read the New Testament, all through the New Testament, baptism follows belief. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture in uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 12. It says, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So belief preceded baptism. That's just one verse. There are a whole bunch of them. I could give you a whole list. I'm not going to. That's not my point. But I can afterwards. A person is baptized as a testimony that they're trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so they're testifying to their faith, which is why we don't baptize infants. Because infants have not exercised personal faith. Okay, So... Why do we do it the way we do it? Well, that has to do with what the symbolism of baptism is. We believe that baptism is a symbol, an outward and physical symbol of an inward and spiritual reality. It's an outward, visible symbol of the person's personal faith and trust in Christ. So when you see Bob and Nora go down into the water and they're in the water and then they come up out of the water, what that is is a, is a visible, visual picture physically 
of what is true of them spiritually. They're identifying, they're saying, I identify with Jesus in his death and burial, that's going down into the water, and in his resurrection coming up out of the water. So that the symbolism of the baptism matches the significance of the baptism. So that's why we're doing it the way we're doing it. Now, if you have any other questions about all that stuff, I'd be glad to talk to you, or any one of our elders would be glad to talk to you after the service. And we're going to be doing this again, so maybe you're looking at this and you'll hear what these folks have to say and why they're saying it. And I I think it's going to be a great challenge to each of us as we hear from these people why they're going to be baptized and then to watch them be baptized. And we're going to be doing this again in the future. So if you're interested, you feel like maybe God's calling you or prompting you to do this, uh, just talk to me or one of our elders after the service. So at this time, I'm going to ask Bob to come. and He's going to share his testimony. And then uh, following him is Nora. And then after that, we're going to have a baptism. So I was raised in a Christian home by a father who baptized his children as infants. Not because he believed that would save us, but rather because he wanted to identify us with Christ through baptism. It was a practice we referred to as household baptism, and it carried the implication that Dad believed, based on Acts 16.31, that all of his children would come to saving faith in Jesus, which we did. I remember several times as a child I prayed, asking Jesus to wash my sins away, wanting to make sure my faith was my own and that I was truly and properly saved. I personally have not believed the practice of household baptism to be the most scriptural for some time. And I've asked various people about the status of my baptism um, and have gotten various answers. I was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by immersion, so I suppose in a way getting baptized again may not be different. However, I've had a growing conviction that I want to be baptized to Jesus, the Savior I love, by my own choice, and as my own public statement that I want to be identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus, to symbolically put to death the old Bob Short and walk in the new life I have by virtue of Jesus' resurrection. Today, even though I've been previously baptized, and even though I've been an elder in this church for over five years, I voluntarily and with understanding take my place in baptism for the first time. I suppose it's been my pride that kept me from doing this many years ago, and my pride is one of the things I would love to leave underneath as I rise out of the water this morning. In Romans 10:9, it says, if, de- if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for all my sins. I realize that I'm a sinner and he's the only way to be with God. In John 14, 6, Jesus tells us, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to be baptized because I want to be identified as a believer in Christ. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. I believe. 
Lord, we believe in you. We thank you for your salvation. Thank you that you are our Savior. We pray for these who have been baptized, that you will just guide them, bless them, strengthen them, help them to follow you, and and help all all of us to be an encouragement to them. Um, We pray that you'll bless this service and um, just speak to our hearts as we desire to hear from you and we desire uh, for you to transform us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We have just a couple of announcements before Steve comes up. We first want to just welcome everyone who's here. If you're new with us, um, there's, a, there's a flap on your bulletin. We'd love to have you fill that out and tell us a little bit about yourself. And, and if you are a regular here, you can also use that flap to kind of communicate to the church staff, prayer requests, anything that you need. So just a couple of quick um, reminders about what's going on coming up here. Tonight we have family prayer night. Obviously very... Um, important that we be lifting up our church and our community and our, our nation in prayer. And so really encourage you to come and bring, bring your family. Um, that's a, it's a, a blessed time. Um, so that's this evening at 6.30. Thank you. I know it's in the bulletin. Um, there's also a concert on Thursday night called Winter Jam. And um, we don't quite have a group of 10 yet. We're close. So if you happen to want to go and you want some tickets, um, see me afterward. And I'm, I'm trying to coordinate that. So there's still time. Um, with that, we'll bring Pastor Steve up. Let's just pause for prayer as we look to the Lord and ask his blessing on his word. Father, uh, we come on this bitter cold morning with the beautiful sunshine and the glistening snow as reminders that you are sovereignly in control of all of life and all of our circumstances. God, my heart is full with the uh, just the testimonies of Bob and Nora and your faithful work in their lives and their faithful submission to your call to obedience and taking this step. And I pray that your word would continue to speak to each of our hearts, opening up our eyes and souls and minds to the truths that are contained in it. And we pray, dear Father, that you would take the truth, wash over our hearts, and that you would change our lives for your glory and the gain of your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not a real big news guy on a lot of things, especially not tabloid news, but uh, you may be familiar with what's happening over in Great Britain with Harry and Meghan uh, making their own Brexit, I guess you might say, because they're uh, leaving the royal family. Uh, they feel like somehow, I, I, I don't know, my my. My thought is, perhaps, since Harry's kind of way down the line, you know, it doesn't really feel like he has much of a shot at the throne, so why not just get out and, you know, cut our losses while we can, and we'll just uh, make a life of our own. I have no idea if that's even true. I just know that they're leaving, okay, as official members of the royal family, no longer going to be in the, in the process. And I say that because they're, they're somewhat you know, I guess, feeling of maybe being insignificant in the family is set in antithesis to the passage that we're going to be look at for someone who is part of a royal family that's seeking to be established, not escape the royal family, but to establish the royal family. And that's the text we're looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 2 with verses 13 through 23 is an attempt to establish Jesus' royalty, his fact and place in the royal family in the line of David as the divine king and the Messiah. And we've been looking at this prior to 
January 1. We looked at it at the beginning of the end of December in Christmas time, at Christmas time. And we said in chapters 1 that the genealogy and the birth of Jesus established him as the, the son of David, the Messiah King. Then we started in chapter 2, and what we see in chapter 2, which Mark brought us into, is that there are four prophetic fulfillments in chapter 2. And each of these prophetic fulfillments confirm even further the identity and the reality of Jesus as the divine king, the Messiah of Israel. And this is important because of the context. This is a Jewish Christian audience that are struggling to put the things in place as to who this Jesus person is. Is he really the Messiah? And so the author, Matthew, is trying to make a very, very strong case. We left the story that Mark introduced chapter 2 with the Magi, the astrologers, the people from the east, worshiping at the feet of Jesus, the child, and then being warned in a dream to leave, and so they left. And so we pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 13, where we see God's sovereign work to protect this child and his sovereign work in order to bring about the fulfillment of prophecy that certainly confirms his identity as the king. Harry and Meghan are kind of down the line and they're trying to maybe think that they're insignificant. Well, this member of a royal family that we're looking at this morning is too important for us to pass over and to ignore. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles or open your device, find it in your device, Matthew chapter 2. The page number is on the outline in the bulletin. There is a Bible underneath a seat in front of you somewhere close. So if you want to turn to it, I'm going to read verses 13 through 23, Matthew chapter 2, and we'll begin to look at this passage where God's sovereign protection and his specific prophetic fulfillment regarding Jesus gives us these three insights that prove his identity and I hope propel us to respond in an appropriate way. So here we are, verse 13, chapter 2. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Just a side note here, as I read through the text, if you have a Bible, a pen or something, you might just underline, underline every time you see the words, the child. Okay, the child. So in verse 13, in a dream saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and he took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus 
was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee and came and resided in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He, was, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this is a fascinating passage of Scripture because you have an angel appearing many times. You have uh, Joseph being obedient many times. You have the fulfillment of prophecy many times. And so how do we make heads or tails of all of it? It seems to me that the, Matthew is being very meticulous about trying to communicate to us that Jesus really is the Messiah in a way that we can't really dismiss it. He's too important to just pass off. And the first of these insights we gain is that we see the king being identified Jesus the king being identified with his people in verses 13 through 15 the text says now when they had departed meaning the magi okay so they'd left they'd been warned not to go back to Herod then God sovereignly intervened with three more dreams they received a dream, if you go back to verse 12. They received a dream, don't go back to Herod. Now we have three more dreams. In chapter 2, the first 12 verses, we had one prophecy. Now we have fulfilled, now we have three more prophecies fulfilled, all regarding the person of Jesus. God was sovereignly intervening. So an angel of the Lord is a good angel, not a bad angel. This is an angel of light, not an angel of darkness. Instructed Joseph, arise and take the child and his mother. And if you're underlining the child, you notice oftentimes it was and his mother. A very interesting way that Matthew communicates very specifically that he is not the father. Subtle, but true. But this child and his mother, that's the real deal. Now, he's not necessarily uh, the, the, the father that we are to be looking at. He wanted us to know that. And so we see that Herod wanted Jesus dead. Arise, take the child and flee to Egypt. Because Herod wanted the child dead. And the events of history, uh, he, he, he went, God went out of harm's way. God went out of his way to keep Jesus out of harm's way. Okay? Take him out of the way. Because Herod has a plan. I was privileged to know, to know Romaine. Uh, Romaine was a World War II vet. And Romaine had been a, a shipmate and a maintenance guy. A machinist mate, so he worked in the engine room, okay, on the USS Hazelwood during World War II. And a month before, his destroyer was struck by a kamikaze plane. He had been reassigned from the first and the fore engine room to the aft engine room, the back engine room. The kamikaze pilot targeted and hit right where he had been working killing 107 sailors and officers on that ship. Romaine survived because God had sovereignly and divinely ordained that he be moved by, not by his own will, but his own circumstances. At the time, Romaine was not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this ship limped back to Pearl Harbor where it was repaired. But you can see the damage to the ship was immense in fact, Romaine even had shrapnel from the Jap Zero that had hit the plane, and he had taken it and kept it as a souvenir of his survival. Herod headed out for Jesus, 
And by the providence and sovereignty of God, God had orchestrated that his child, Jesus, be taken away, out of harm's way, out of harm's way. God's intervention was for Jesus' prevention. And you have that designation, the child and his mother. Joseph was the guardian. (laughs) He wasn't the dad of this guy. And then flee to Egypt means start now and go. And you notice that Joseph's obedience all through this text is a testimony to his character. He didn't question God. He just did what God said. And he fled. He fled immediately. That very night he got him up and he left with his family. I have a, a friend who shared with me and my wife, Marla, about uh, a missionary who lives in the Middle East, a converted Muslim that is now sharing Christ with, with people, never sleeps in the same spot, never stays in the same spot for more than three or four hours because they're always on the run, always fleeing, fearing for their life because if they're found out, discovered, there are people out there ready to take this person out. Fleeing. They fled. And why did they flee? Well, the text tells us that because Herod, or for, Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Herod's murderous plan had already been conceived after he had met with the Magi and told them to go and tell, come back to him and tell him where they found the child. He had already had it planned out. But God was one step ahead of him, directing the child to safety and involved cooperation. Then we read in verse 14, it says, And he, that is, Joseph, arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and was there until the death of Herod. I want you to look at a map and see how far. He had to go 75 miles. You can't really see it real well, but it's a solid red line from Jerusalem, Bethlehem, all the way down into Egypt, 75 miles just to get to the border. They probably went further into Egypt. Some say they went to Alexandria, which was a, or uh, some other town, which was a kind of a place where the Jews kind of held up. But it was an arduous trip, but he, he started on the trip, and he took the trip. And the amazing thing is now, God's God, right? So could he have not protected Joseph and the baby and the mother in another way? Why did he have to take them all the way down to Egypt? That's the question I would ask myself. Well, we find out why in verse 15. Verse 15, it says, And he was there until the death of, the Herod, of Herod, that what was in order that this was the purpose for him going down into Egypt was so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I have called my son. So the intentionality of God's sovereign direction of Joseph and his family down to Egypt was so that this prophecy of the Messiah would be fulfilled. It's interesting because the flight to Egypt was just one more piece of the puzzle that would prove Jesus as the Messiah because he would come up out of Egypt as it was predicted that he would. Now, Here's the backstory. Several years, 700 years after the, the, uh, the Exodus, Hosea was commissioned by God to speak to the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel had gone astray. They had gone and become unfaithful to God. Some of you are familiar with the story, but the story is that of Hosea. Um, and Hosea had married a prostitute. And his love for that prostitute was a picture 
because of her unfaithfulness and her playing around, he would still be loyal and faithful to her. In the same way, God was trying to demonstrate to the children of Israel that you have followed your false gods and I am still faithful to you. And in order to communicate the enduring nature of it and the depth of his love for him, for them, he speaks in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And you'll see it on the screen. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I have called my son. My son there means Israel, the nation of Israel. So he's saying 700 years after the Exodus, I'm going to remind you of what I did 700 years before in my loyal love to my people. I delivered them from bondage in Egypt. And I feel the same way about you, my people. And I'm going to deliver you. But then how does that have to do anything with Jesus? Well, it has to do with Jesus because um, we see that Matthew applied what Hosea had said to them 700 years later. Matthew applies it. So 1,400 years after the Exodus, Matthew is saying what happened in the Exodus was a picture of what Jesus would do when he came out of Egypt as his perfect son, as the ultimate son, as the greater son. So Jesus is identified with the people of Israel and in the same way that God demonstrated his love towards his people Israel and bringing them out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, God would, so that they would be his people, God would bring out his greater son out of Egypt to be their Messiah in fulfillment of this prophecy. It's an interesting, amazing way that just as God had brought them out of Egypt, so he would bring his son out of Egypt. So that Exodus, the Exodus of Egypt, which is back in the book of Exodus, their exodus from Egypt, is a type. It actually prefigures and predicts that Jesus would come out of Egypt. And a type is nothing other than that it is the, the shadow of which Jesus is the substance. A type is a, a word or a, a statement or a person or an event that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And how do we know if it was a type? Well, we know it's a type from the Old Testament when it's referred to and declared to be such in the New Testament, which this one is. This morning in the first service, we were talking about Hebrews chapter 9, another example of a type. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, the sacrificial system and Jesus as the high priest, he, the Old Testament sacrificial system is a prefigurement of what Jesus would ultimately fulfill in his ministry as the Son of God and sacrificing his life. And so here we have it. Jesus, God's greater Son, is the Messiah who came out of Egypt, identified with his people. Secondly, the, the king is opposed by the world. In verse 16, we see that uh, Herod wasn't very happy when he found out that the Magi had gone another way. In fact, he believed he had been tricked, and the text says he became very enraged. He threw a king-sized hissy fit. Okay, And as Mark adequately pointed out, Herod was uh, really a paranoid monster. I mean, he was a monster, and of he had major anger issues. Okay, uh, so he would be heavily medicated today. Uh, he would be heavily medicated. Maybe I don't know if they even do this now. That he probably needed to be in a straitjacket, put in a padded cell, but they they didn't do that. They should have done that. 
Now I want you to see this picture because you know what it's like to be enraged sometimes. But sometimes I've watched, I, I don't watch tennis much, but I watched one time and, and uh, this person was a little upset. You know, they, they didn't really perform the way they had thought they would perform. I, my dad told me one time he was playing golf with a, with a guy. Uh, he had played golf with this guy several times. And the guy made such a bad shot. that They were along a road, a highway. And the, again, this is in northern Iowa. So you, 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 have, you have golf courses. And right next to the golf courses, you don't have a lot of rough and you have cornfields. And so the guy just took his, took his club and he just heaved it across the highway and into this cornfield, about 20 rows into the cornfield. Well, after they got done golfing, and unbeknownst to this guy, my dad went out into the cornfield and he found this guy's uh, club. And then the next time at their, uh, you know, their club, the membership, the guys get together on league night, he presented it to him as uh, his, his lost club. People get enraged, and Herod had gotten enraged. And what we see in the text in verse 16 is that the innocent boys became the first victims in the hostility between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the world. Now, it's, it's almost nauseating to me to actually spend too much time thinking about what actually happened that night, for what Herod Foisted upon not just Bethlehem, but the environs. You see, he wasn't just, I wasn't, he wasn't just going after Bethlehem. It was anything close. But it was a picture of the reception of the Messiah. That the Messiah would receive not just from the world, but from, even from his own people. This hostility towards Jesus. And Jesus mentions it in John chapter 15. I want you to, I think we have these verses, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were the wor- of the world, uh, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. And Herod wasn't just after those babies. He was after the king. His hostility wasn't just towards those people. It was towards God. And so we see. And why was this so? Again, we read in the text, verse 17, Then that which was spoken through the Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Another fulfillment of prophecy. How so? That the, the, the martyrdom of these children in Bethlehem was precursored by or prefigured by the martyrdom and the death of the children of Israel as they were preparing to go into Babylonian captivity. He quotes Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15. And so the people back then, we see that it was unknown to Jeremiah. He didn't know he was writing about what would happen and be fulfilled through the person and the circumstances around Jesus Christ. Jeremiah spoke of the terrible sorrow that would be experienced by the mothers of the Jewish boys that were marching off to Babylonian captivity. Rama was the staging area for the mass deportation. And the mothers would see their, their sons uh, headed off to Babylonian captivity and to death. Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, and the mother of the sons of Israel, the sons of Ephraim, which, and the sons of Benjamin, which were representative of the northern and the southern tribes of Israel. So Rachel weeping for her children is just a metaphor for Israel weeping for the lost ones that would come. But what we see is 
that it referred immediately to this deportation sorrow, but it referred ultimately and most significantly to the weeping that would take place as Jesus escaped and the sons, their sons would be butchered by Herod. Again, in fulfillment of this person, all in an attempt to destroy Christ. The passage that Matthew quotes from Jeremiah doesn't stop there, though. That's the neat thing. Because in Jeremiah 31, verses 16 through 17, God also promises, and I think prefigures and predicts, that there would be a return, that they would come back. And if you see Proverbs 31, or Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return to the land, which they did, and they ultimately will, and that one day all Israel will be saved. So there is hope in the midst of this horrible experience. And Jesus is in the middle of all that, and he's a reason for it. They return from captivity. One day, they and all who trust in Christ and who are sons of Abraham by faith will escape slavery of sin and will enjoy new life with him. So there's a few things I just want to share that came to my mind as we think about well, how does this have to do with Jesus and what does it have to do with us? That, you know, there was this prophecy that was fulfilled that the, the people were weeping. Rachel was weeping for her children. Well, I think there's three perspectives to keep in mind here. First of all, that Jesus was the object of hostility and so will we be as his followers. Hostility is here. And I've quoted this verse before, and many of you are familiar with it. But in John 3, 19, it says, Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And because their deeds are evil and they don't like the darkness, if we illumine the darkness in front of them, if we tell people that they're sinful, that they need Christ, it's all again, not because we want them to go to hell, but because we want them to turn and trust Christ and go to heaven. But when you point that out, people don't like it. I mean, I don't like being told. I'm a knucklehead sometimes. I don't like it when uh, I've, I've seen particular sins that, oh, yeah, that was kind of ugly. I don't like that. Neither does the world. Rejection and disobedience of the world is a precursor. It comes before the final restoration. Folks, we're at war. We're at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's hostility towards God's people. It's coming. And think about James chapter 4, verse 4. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Hostility towards God is a friendship with the world. That's the way it is. And the interesting thing is that in the middle of all the hurt that we feel, guess what? Jesus knows what we're going through. Feel rejection? Feel isolation? Feel alienated? Well, Jesus did too. In fact, they tried to take him out. And they're going to try to take us out sometimes. Then, secondly, so there's hostility. Secondly, uh, there is hurt experienced by God's people. You know, it's an interesting thing. People often talk about Christians, oh, you just live in uh, pie-in-the-sky land and you're unrealistic about life. And No, life is painful. I had one professor in seminary said, life is a painful thing and then you die. Well, that's really optimistic, right? Oh, well, life of pain, then you die. Oh, sign me up. No. But we need to be realistic. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Gee, I'm not sure I like that. Maybe I'm, you know. But it's the 
cost worth the benefit? That's the thing. Yeah, because it's temporary, the pain. Permanent is the pleasure in Christ. I read this recently that Newsweek reported in January of 2018 that persecution and genocide of Christians across the world is worse today than at any time in history. Worse today than any time in history. More martyrs now than there ever were in the past. Well, that's scary, but Christ is with us. There is hostility towards this king and towards his followers. But he has overcome, and he will overcome, and we will overcome. That's the third point I want to make. There's hope. Okay. There's hostility, there's hurt, but there's hope for God's people. What did Herod try to do? He tried to take Jesus out. Did he succeed? Absolutely not. Were a lot of people hurt in the process? Yes. But Jesus gained the ultimate victory. And God in His plan and His sovereignty, He's working it out so that His redemptive plan will march forward and the church of Jesus Christ will not fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God and His saints. There is nothing. Who shall separate us, Paul said, from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or peril or nakedness or sword. No, in all these things, what? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created being is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus has told us that we have the victory. Interesting, if you read in Acts chapter 4, how it says that there was gathered Herod and Pilate and all these people in Jerusalem, that they would fulfill in the fullness of God's time, they would fulfill God's purpose in crucifying Jesus. They're players on God's game board. And God's still in charge. God's in charge. Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells them, don't be afraid of the one who kills your body. Here's the one to be afraid of. The one who kills your body and afterwards is able to send your soul to hell. That's the one you need to be afraid of. And who's that? God. We need to be afraid of God. We need... Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Therefore be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's verse 58. Verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we have the victory, therefore be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's going to hurt. So Jesus identified with his people. Jesus was opposed. And then we see the final stage here in verses 19 through 23 that the king is humbled from the start. Harry and Meghan are leaving pomp and circumstance to hopefully go out and find their own pomp and circumstance. Jesus never started where they started. No. He started out very poorly. There is a parallel in ideas in verses 13 and, and 19. In verse 13, now when they had departed, that is the Magi, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take this child and stay down in Egypt until... 
Herod has passed away. Then if you go to verse 19, you see, but when Herod was dead, oh, oh, okay, now Herod's dead. A few months after they went down into Egypt, Herod passed away and remained there. And this Herod's death occasioned the second angelic appearance to Joseph in this passage, the second one. And he said, okay, go back, because the one who was seeking to kill you, is, he's, he's dead. No problem. Uh, I don't know about you, but as a, as a parent, when our children were young, we used to play hide-and-seek. And we had a, a church building and a fellowship hall and classrooms and upstairs and a downstairs and a sanctuary. And we'd go over there on days like this or days like yesterday when there was no school, you know, and we'd play hide-and-seek. And so somebody would be it, and they would have to stand and count to 20 while the rest of us went and hid. Well, every once in a while, and this is one of the games I would let my kids win. You know, I'd pretend like I didn't see where they were hiding or whatever. And, and then some of them wouldn't be found, you know. And so I would go through the building saying, it's okay, it's all clear, you're safe now, you're safe now, it's all clear. So then they'd come out of hiding. You know, ah, oh, good, they won because they were in hiding and they made it safely. The angel appears to Joseph and he says, it's all clear. The, nut, the, the knucklehead is dead. You're free. Come back to, to where you're supposed to be so you can fulfill the prophecy of out of Egypt I called my son. But even more than that, verse 22, Joseph's not a stupid guy. He says, yeah, Herod's gone, but this Archelaus dude, this is the son of Herod, he's still around, and he's a whack job too. He is really not a good guy, so I don't know what I'm going to do with him. Well, his, his concern was confirmed, because then God appeared another time in a dream, and he says, yeah, right, uh, probably not a good idea to go to, into Judea and stay there, so you need to go on, and God sovereignly directed the family back to somewhere else. He knew Archelaus was not good. You know what? I don't know if I'm saying this guy's name right, but Xing Jinping, the president of China, is not a safe guy. You see the people in Hong Kong, they have to run from the, the riot police, you know? They're, they're being chased, and, and it's not safe. So you don't know what this guy's going to do. He didn't know what Archelaus was going to do. So here's what he says. Go into Galilee. And then you go into Nazareth, because it says, he went into Galilee, and it came, about, it came and resided, verse 23, in a city called Nazareth. Now, why did he do that? Why go to Nazareth? Why not go to, you know, some other place, the Gaza Strip? Or why not go up to Damascus and Syria? No. Look at the text, verse 23, that what was spoken through the prophet, third time, that we see it in our section, but it's the fourth time in the chapter 2, that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled, that he shall be called a Nazarene. Problem. Um, there is no place we have ever seen recorded in the Old Testament where it specifically states that the Messiah will be, called, be a Nazarene. <laughs> Yet, the text says that in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus went to Nazareth and he would be called a Nazarene. So what do we do with that? Oh, well, that's a big problem. Well, not too big of a problem because we 
don't have everything that was ever written or everything that was ever said by every prophet in the, in the Old Testament. And secondly, what does it mean to be a Nazarene? A Nazarene is the code word in those days for despised, unsavory, unwanted. These are the people who were the outcasts. If you're over in Europe, they're the Roma, you know, they're the, the, the unwanted, the despicable people. And I'm not saying those people are despicable. I'm just saying that's the characteristic that they're, they're given. That's the label. Now think of what, what was said of Jesus in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verse 40, 45 and 46, it was Nathaniel who said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And later it was said, you know, why are we looking about this Jesus guy? We know that the, the Messiah is not coming from Nazareth. Oh yeah, but despised, forsaken, despicable, which all throughout the Old Testament, I'm going to give you a couple of passages for sure, but in Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, in Isaiah chapter 53, we see that the Messiah is said to be one who's despised, forsaken of men, and forsaken. Ah, yeah, he'll be called a Nazarene. In fulfillment of God's word, Jesus was the Nazarene. In fulfillment of prophecy. So there's the fourth one in this chapter, chapter 2. Jesus experienced humiliation and he exercised humility. He experienced humiliation. He exercised humility. And guess what, folks? If you're here and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's with you when you experience the same. When you are humiliated, and when you exercise humility, Jesus is with us in, this, in, in these things. Sovereignly, God protected him. Sovereignly, God used that protection in those particular spots to fulfill the prophetic word so that we would have confirmed to us that Jesus really is the Son of God. To me, there are at least three things that that responses that that leads to and the first one is this that I'm more convinced that Jesus is the Messiah the promised Messiah of the Old Testament and remember this was written to the Jews and so all that prophetic evidence was like stacking it up on top of each other you know what are you going to do with this what are you going to do with this what are you going to do with this you got to do something with it and so my word to you this morning is I invite you to receive rather than reject this king he's the only one who came and suffered and died on the cross to pay the debt that you and I owe, which was testified to through these baptisms this morning. That we could have our sins forgiven, have the promise of eternal life, and live forever, beginning now, the moment we trust Christ, that's eternal life begins now, not after we die. I, I kind of beat that drum because I never got that until an atheistic prof, when I was a freshman in college, said, I get tired of telling you Christians what you believe. You believe that eternal life begins the moment you trust Christ. His theology was better than most Christians. Even though he denied all of it. He understood it. And so I'm more convinced that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. The statistical probability here for those of you who are mathematically minded. And if you're not you can turn this off probably. Because uh, you'll not listen to him anyway. The statistical probability that one person would fulfill eight prophecies in the same way that Jesus fulfilled prophecy, is 1 times 10 to the 17th power. Okay, that's a 1 with 
17 zeros after it. It's the same probability as if you covered the state of Texas one feet deep with silver dollars, and on one of those silver dollars, the backside of it was painted red. And you threw them all out one foot deep, and the probability of you walking out in the state of Texas and picking up the lone silver dollar that was painted red on the backside, that's the same probability that one person would fulfill eight prophecies. To fulfill 48 prophecies is 1 times 10 to the 157th power. That's a 1 with 157 zeros after it. There are 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. Wow. Okay, make your case. This is the case that the Scripture makes for the person and the work of Jesus, and I just invite you to accept it. Secondly, we can be comforted. I don't know about you, but when I look at God sovereignly working in the life of Jesus to protect that child and prophetically fulfill the, the work and the ministry to him, it gives me encouragement that, that God is working. He executes his plan flawlessly. I mean, God uses angels. Think about this through this text. God uses angels. He's using dreams. He's using obedient servants. He's using maniac kings. He's using all kinds of stuff to fulfill the prophecy, protect the Savior, and provide salvation for mankind. And he's still working today. And sometimes we get discouraged, and sometimes we get uh, depressed and disheartened because things aren't going the way we want them to, or my life is not working out the way I want it. I feel like God's not around. He's not doing this, but he is. And what would you think? As a mother in Bethlehem, God had forsaken me. That's what I would be thinking. Where is God? God was protecting their Savior. Because the most important thing was not their physical life, but their spiritual life. Their life forever. And finally, I'd be compelled to walk humbly. How did Jesus lead? He led by serving. He loved by sacrificing. And he lived selflessly. I don't know about you, but that hits me like, whoa. And that's what a disciple, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher, Luke 640. It's a call to lead. As a servant, it's a call to love with sacrifice. It's a call to live selflessly. God sent his son to earth. He protected him. He prophetically fulfilled those signs and wonders and things that were predicted about Jesus in the person of Jesus. And then he put him on a cross so that all who would trust in him would be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life, and none of us deserves it. And when we break bread and drink a cup, we just remember what He's done. And I hope we do more than remember. I hope we reflect humbly on the fact that we don't deserve what Jesus did for us. On the cross, our burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away our sin. Then sings my soul, my glory, God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Then we not just reflect on it, but we rejoice. Hey, 
I'm in. You know? <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> it's, it's, it's good. And, and then finally, now we just reflect and, re- and rejoice. But I say, Lord, by your grace, help me to live more fully for you. And so as you sit there and you pray and search your heart and ask God to give you a recollection of sin that you can confess and repent and turn from before you come up and take these elements, then remember, reflect humbly on what he's done for you. Rejoice. And then come with resolve to, yeah, God, I want to I be better. And if you aren't trusting in Christ, then repent and trust in Christ and you too will be one of his children. Let's pray. Father, as we take these elements, I pray that your spirit would work in each of our hearts. Be reminded that Jesus is too important just to pass off. I don't know, you know, I don't profess to be a judge or to discern what Harry and Meghan are up to, but I know that they're trying to escape their royalty. I just thank you that Jesus didn't escape it, but Matthew at least begins to try to establish it for us that we would respond with humility and devotion first of all surrender take these elements Lord help us to reflect rejoice and resolve by your grace and for your glory we pray in Christ's name
Thank you.